in, in gearing up for Ken Quick's ministry tonight, this actually happened last week. I had this sense as I was trying to prepare for preaching that the Lord wanted me to preach this passage from Hebrews 4. And, you know, at first it was just a sense. And, and I got to be careful with subjective senses, right? You want to try to weigh them. But as I thought about it more and more and I looked at the passage more and more, it seemed to me that it, there was a real good reason why we'd want to look at a passage like we're going to look at today from Hebrews 4. And, and the reason is, is because we're about to go into this work with blessing point tonight. And then in four weeks, we're going to probably do a, something like four weeks. We're going to do like a day and a half where we're going to look at our past as a church and as believers and try to hear from the Lord about that. It's going to be a lot of subjective work. Like it's going to be a lot of navel gazing, which isn't always bad. And sometimes it's absolutely needed. But it's going to be a lot of looking inward, considering our lives, considering what we have done, considering what we need. And I feel like what the Lord would want us to do in preparation for that is to fortify ourselves by remembering first and arming ourselves with the truth of who he is and what he's done and why he's fundamentally the key issue here. Like his grace, his power, his sufficiency is what's going to get us through as a church. It's all the stuff of looking inward and considering our past and trying to hear from him. Like it's good. It's means God's using it. God wants to do that. But it's all on the foundation of something else. It's all empowered by and sourced in him and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness and his patience with us and his long suffering with us and his not giving up on us. And if we shift a priority away from that to the degree that we do that, we'll burn fuel and we'll run out of gas for this journey because the journey's hard. There's a lot of work to do with the Lord, with each other. But if instead we keep the focus on his sufficiency, his grace, his mercy, his power, we're just filling the tank over and over and over again to be able to keep going. That's just true of life in general, but it's no less true for what we're doing as a church right now. And so I really do believe that the Lord wants us to look at this passage today in Hebrews 4. It's a, it's a famous passage. It's a passage we've talked about many times today. Well, really, not just today. I mean, many times before. And it was certainly a passage that was in Kim's prophecy that I got. I was on a trip this week when I got back and opened my email early this morning. It was there. It was in the songs that we sang very, very much. So I, I, that just helped me be encouraged. That it really is something God wants to say to us this morning. So here's the passage. It's Hebrews 4. If you have your Bibles, I should have told you that at the beginning. Turn to Hebrews 4. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'm not going to use slides today because it's a pretty simple passage. It's right there in your Bible, and we're just going to go through it. But Brando, if you do want to just pull up that passage, it's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Three verses. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And we're just going to go through each verse at a time and look at what, what it's saying to us. Now, this passage is short. It's packed with truth. And, and there are like three basic ideas, as there often are, that I want to draw your attention to. Just corresponding to really the three, the three verses. And a lot of this, I, I preached a message on this many moons ago. I think it was like six or seven years ago. Um, and so much of this work has been done. I've, I've tweaked some things. 
But as we've talked about before, uh, this isn't typically a new thing that we need to hear when we come to hear a sermon. It's, it's, it's ancient truth that needs to be made alive and needs to be made new in us. So uh, with that being said, we're going to start with verse 14. And the first point I'd just like to make is this. Jesus became like us, and therefore we have a great high priest before God. Jesus became like us, and therefore we have a great high priest before God. Those are just words. They probably just bounce off your heads this morning. They probably don't mean anything to you. But let's hope that God would, would help those things. That means something to you. Verse 1, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Since then we have a great high priest priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession we have a high priest that's what the author of hebrews is telling us what is that well it's fundamentally it's it's a person who represents people before a god with an offering it's a person who represents people before god with an offering But this term here is high priest. It's not just priest, it's high priest. And this other phrase, passing through the heavens, it's taking us back to the Jewish temple and to one very special day in particular, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On this day, there was one priest above all priests. He was called the high priest. And he interceded for the whole nation by offering a very special sacrifice. There was a room in the center of the temple hidden behind a 60-foot curtain. And that curtain was thick. It was perhaps as thick as a man's palm. Take your palm. That's how thick the curtain was. And this room was called the holiest place or the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in this room, there was there in the center of the room, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that ark were the Ten Commandments, the two stone tablets, the second carvings that God had carved into stone and given to Moses on Mount Sinai. They were inside that golden chest. And above this ark, there was a covering called the mercy seat. And above that mercy seat, from time to time, or in permanent presence, we don't know, the glory of God would visibly dwell. A physical expression. You could see a light, a cloud. And once a year, and only once a year, only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. The king couldn't go. The rulers, the judges couldn't go. Nobody could go. None of the other priests could go. Only one man. And he would go in and before the presence of God, he would sprinkle the blood of of slaughtered animals on the mercy seat above the law. Right? Mercy in light of the holy law of God that had been transgressed. Mercy in light of God's commandments which had been ignored and trampled on. Or just forgotten about. Mercy with the blood. And this was to make intercession for the entire nation. One man making intercession for millions of people with blood. This annual ritual was to communicate to the people the holiness of God. His covenant with them that they had broken. And their need for atonement for sin. And it was to communicate to them it was provided for. Atonement was made for them. 
Why am I telling you all of this? Because it helps us to see what this passage is telling us about Jesus. See, the book of Hebrews is clear that the temple and the Holy of Holies were an illustration. They weren't the main thing. They were a sign of something pointing outward. They were an illustration of the true temple in the true heaven. There is a real heaven. There is a real temple in heaven. And you see, in the book of Hebrews, it's clear that everything is trying to point not to what happened in these Old Testament rituals, but to what's happening now in another plane of existence that we're not in, where God truly dwells. And likewise, these sacrifices offered on that one day, Yom Kippur, are pointing to something much greater. And it had to be greater. They have to be pointing to something else because the blood of animals, Hebrews tells us, could do nothing, really could do nothing to absorb God's punishment, wrath against our sin. But now the author says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, not this stone temple in Palestine. No, he's literally gone into heaven and he's Jesus. He's a man like us, but he's the son of God. What the author is saying is that Jesus is not passed through the man-made temple, but into the real presence of God. And why should he be able to do this? Because he's the son of God and he's the man Christ Jesus. See, since a man owed a penalty to God, it was a man who was needed to pay the penalty to God. But the problem is, since Adam, every man has been infected by sin and no one can pay the penalty for another, he must die for his own sins. And so Jesus is not just a man. He's very God from very God. He is, as Hebrews 7.26 says, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And he represents you, your representative, your covering before God is holy, is innocent, is undefiled, separated from sinners. And he is exalted above the heavens for you personally. And Hebrew says he intercedes for us that What does it mean that he intercedes for us? First, it means that he has presented before God on our behalf the perfect offering of himself. This holy, undefiled, separated from sinners, beautiful, amazing, all-sufficient offering. Our high priest has made an offering to God so perfect, so pure, so eternally satisfying to God that it can never ever need to be repeated or repaid and to try to repeat it to try to repay it insults its perfection it's saying to god that's not enough hebrews 10 10 through 14 says we have been made holy he's talking to people struggling with sin significantly he's not talking to people who in their behavior and in their hearts are perfect yet they're not yet perfectly holy In their actual day-to-day life. But that doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus and who he is. And what he is to God. And so the author says, we have been made holy. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. Every priest in the Old Testament days. Stands daily ministering, offering time after time. The same sacrifices year after year after year. Which can never take away sins. 
Not really. But this passage said, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, He has made perfect for all time those who are being made holy. Do you hear these exhaustive words? These completed, fully fulfilled, like there's no hedging on maybe, kind of, a little bit. Listen, by one offering, He has made perfect for all time. Those who are being made holy. As you're going about your daily life struggling to serve God as you should and struggling to love as you should and struggling to obey as you should, there is an offering that's already been completed for you saying to God, they are holy. They are perfect. There's nothing they're going to do today, yesterday, tomorrow, or next year that can be greater than this perfection that's already been given to God on their behalf and represents them before God. And so the author can say, for all time, your sins have been covered. For all time. I don't always, that's a hallelujah. There, that is, yes. What else can you say when this really gets into you? But hallelujah. I don't, I don't usually feel eternally redeemed, eternally forgiven in my emotions. I don't usually feel that all my sins have been paid in full forever. I feel all kinds of other stuff. But this passage today and the broader picture in Hebrews is telling us that is not authoritative. Like that's not authoritative over my life. What's authoritative is Jesus and what he has done. That's what's authoritative. My priest, Jesus, has presented for, before God the perfect, sinless, eternally, forever, all-time sufficient offering of himself for me and for you. He is my high priest. He is your high priest. You don't represent yourself before God. You couldn't. It would be a nightmare. You don't represent yourself before God. And you don't have to. He represents you before God and he is perfect and he is innocent and he is undefiled and he is holy. And he stands for you before God. He does this forever. He does this forever. The wonderful news is that since this man, Jesus, is also the eternal son of God, he is able to be in God's presence, not just once a year for one day, but eternally forever. All the time. Hebrews 7.25 tells us. He is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives. He always lives. He always lives. To make intercession for them. Do you know. That at the very throne of God. Right now in this moment. At 11.25 a.m. February 11th. God's own son is interceding for you. Pam Steele, he is there. Chris Tucker, he is there. All you Wilsons, he is there. Mark, Zach, everyone, Kim, he is there interceding for you personally before God. That's what he's doing. Paul says it in Romans 8, 34. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? More than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? We don't understand everything that goes on in heaven. But what is clear from scriptures is that there is this ongoing eternal intercession 
communication from the Son to the Father about you for your sake and for my sake. And it is grounded in something completed, finished, fulfilled, unchangeable. This offering for all time at Golgotha 2,000 years ago. So it's this interesting tension. For all time, he intercedes for you based upon what has happened once and never needs to be repeated. What is finished. It never stops. Because that offering was perfect for all time. F.F. Bruce says that Jesus Christ lives, I love this, eternally engaged to bless and protect you. Jesus Christ lives eternally engaged to bless and protect you. We can learn something about this intercession by remembering how Christ interceded for others on earth. We've talked about this story many times, but again, I pray that it will be fresh in your hearts again. Hours before Peter denies Christ. There's just such amazing grace in this story. On the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus comes up to Peter and says these astounding words. Simon, Simon, behold. Satan demanded. Demanded. To have you. And, and, and what does Jesus say? That's so mean of Satan. How dare he? Doesn't he know who you are and what you've done for me? He demanded to have you. Doesn't he know how much you love your parents? He demanded to have you. Doesn't he know how long-suffering you are with your wife and her issues? No. (sighs) Folks, we do not understand the scorecard on our real selves before God. He says Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. Satan had every right to demand to have Peter. And to sift him as wheat based on Peter and who Peter was. It's so hard to understand that. But it's true. It's why Marshall and Tammy spent three weeks in India. Because all those people have a right to be sifted as wheat. But Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you. Jesus says, I have made intercession for you. And then Jesus tells Peter the result of his intercession. That your faith may not fail. Listen, that is astounding. We struggle with our faith. We struggle with doubts. We struggle with fears. And we think it's all about us and our struggle. And working through these things. And Jesus is telling Peter. Peter, it has so little to do with you. My father and I are going to have a conversation about you. Satan wants to destroy your faith because he says you don't deserve it and you should be destroyed. I'm going to talk to my dad. And the result is, Peter, your faith is going to be fine. 
Your subjective experience of your relationship with God will be fine. Through all the trials and travails and worries and struggles and temptations and sins, yes. But it will be fine. You won't give up on me, Peter. Because I talked to my dad about you. Do you see that? How little it had to do with Peter? I mean, yes, he had a lot of work to do. He had a lot of obedience to give. And we don't want to ignore that. But Jesus is saying it's not based on you, Peter. It's based on me and my father. And he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's not just for you that I'm going to keep you and strengthen you. It's for everybody that belongs to me. So when you heal, go out to them and bring healing. When you get encouraged, when you get strengthened, don't keep it in here. Go and bring it to them. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Like, what are you talking about? Demand to have me and sift me. Do you understand who I am? Like, you know what's inside my heart right now. I am going to the mattresses for you. This is... You're not talking to Judas or Nicodemus coming to you at night. This is me, Peter. I'll cut off ears for you, buddy. Jesus, Peter, you do not understand yourself. Like, you don't know how weak and vulnerable you are, dude. You don't have a clue, really. He says... I tell you, Peter, the rooster won't crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. You're going to do that to a slave girl at a campfire. It's not even going to be before the Sanhedrin that you'll freak out and drop me in a second when it comes to choice between me and your life. This is amazing. And notice that Jesus didn't say to Peter, I've prayed for you that your courage and your strength would be preserved or that your wisdom and your might and your genius would be seen. He says that your faith may not fail. He says, what I've prayed for you is that you're not that your greatness might be sustained and your power and your energy and your muscles and your ingenuity and all your gifts. No, he says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That your faith in me, that your dependence on me, that your focus on me, that your reliance on me, that your trust in me may not fail. Because that's what's going to get you through. See, whether you're four years old or you're 75 years old, whether you're Jim Elliott in the jungle giving your life for Christ, you know, or your Maddie Barr. It doesn't matter. Your strength, your wisdom, your ingenuity, your morality, your ethical fortitude. It matters. Do you trust Jesus? With the tiniest mustard seed of childlike faith or the most mature Jim Elliot die in the jungle for Christ faith. It's dependence on Jesus. Relying on Jesus. Leaning on Jesus. Trusting Jesus that matters. That's what gets you through. And so that's what Jesus protects more than anything up there. Is your hope in him. Your dependence on him. Your reliance on him.
I really believe that he's this great sacrifice for me, that it really depends on him and his goodness and not mine. It, when I really believe that, it just does so much to fight against this vague feeling that we, we're just all attacked with of unbelief, discouragement, lack of desire for God. I mean, not a day goes by where I'm not aware of condemnation, a dread of the future, fear of man, feeling bad for impatience or doubt or fear, selfishness crouching at my door. But if I really, really, really come back to this, I really believe that Jesus Christ represents me before Almighty God, this beautiful, holy, innocent, undefiled, glorious covering of a man, Jesus Christ, represents me, that I don't represent myself, that he's my standard bearer before God, that God sees him as my righteousness and counts that to me. What chance really does unbelief or fear or dread or hopelessness in that, in that ring, what chance does it really have to stand forever to, to really, really crush me, destroy me? We have to wrestle with it, yes. But no wonder, right after Paul says that Jesus is at the right hand, interceding for you, he then says with this question, who can separate us from the love of God? Is it going to be you? Didn't I just tell you that you don't represent yourself? I don't know what's tempting you guys this week. Lust, despair, guilt, marriage crisis, financial crisis, health crisis, church crisis, parenting crisis. But what's going to get you through? What's going to get me through is to hold on to this truth. That we have a great high priest before God interceding for us. And because of that, he says, hold fast to that. Above all things, above everything else, hold fast that you have a great high priest before God interceding for you. And he says, to expand on that, because you don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but you have one who in every respect has been tempted, just like you are, yet he never sinned. This is my second point. We have a sympathetic and compassionate intercessor. We don't just have a pure, innocent, undefiled, holy intercessor. We have a sympathetic and compassionate one. Amen. Are you guys okay if I keep going a little bit longer? Yeah. Greg, Elder Board, did you guys hear that permission I just got? You see, Jesus was fully human. And because of that, he sympathizes with you. All of your trials, all of your temptations, all of them, all of them. The ones that you think are more respectable, like I shouldn't have said that word with that tone, and the ones that are in the dark sewer of your experience that you're ashamed that anybody would know about. See, he was fully human. He got tired and he had to sleep. He got hungry, he had to eat. He got full, he had to go to the bathroom. He got dirty and smelly, he had to take a bath. He was worn down by the sun's heat and shivered in the cold. He was susceptible to mosquitoes and the flu. He enjoyed music and he probably thought women were pretty. He was human. He was tempted in every respect as we are. 
He was tempted to be jealous of other people. He was tempted to be arrogant and sinfully angry. He was tempted to sexual immorality. He was tempted to be irritated or controlled by fear, to give in to unbelief, to suspect God of evil, to be lazy and inconsiderate, to be cold and indifferent to hurting people. He was tempted to give up hope in God and put it in his own ability to manipulate a situation or exploit people. He was tempted in every way that you are. And he never sinned. I want to be clear about that. He never sinned. Sometimes when we say we're tempted by something. What we really mean is we sinned in the heart. Like I, You're tempted to lust. What, what I could really mean is I actually looked and thought something I shouldn't have. I, but Jesus never ever let temptations move him across the line into actual sinning against God. And every single one, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he obeyed his father as a man, obeying God. And that means that they far outstripped in severity anything we could ever face. As soon as you and I give in to a temptation, and we give in to it, the temptation ends. The tension ends. Whether it's lust or anger and laziness, we give full vent to any of that, and the fight's over. You've lost, and you get this little buzz for a little bit of that sin. You don't have to resist it anymore because you've given in to it. But Jesus knew the pain to the full extent, and he exhausted its power over him. And this wasn't an easy thing for him. We tend to think, well, he's God the Son, so big deal. He lived his life on earth as a man, fully understanding what it meant to be a person, a human. Hebrews 7.15 tells us that on earth he prayed like this. Here's how easy it was for Jesus. He prayed with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, Jesus was God, so he could have saved himself. But his whole goal wasn't to be God Almighty on earth. It was to live as a man and struggle as a human struggles. A human struggles to resist sin, to rely on God. So he could learn by this in his experience how hard it is to struggle and to rely on God as a human being. And the result of that is that Hebrews 2.18 tells us that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. And it's because he suffered that he's able to help you. When you're tempted. So in every way. Jesus can relate to you. Discouragement. Anxiety. Jesus. Prayed so hard. With so much dread. That his sweat became like drops of blood. Luke tells us. He uses the word. Jesus was in agony. He can relate to your discouragement. And your anxiety. Three times he went back and forth between the disciples and the father. Three times. Guys, can't you, can't you wait for me? Don't go. What? And it goes back to God. God, please take this cup away from me. Don't make me. Don't let me. If there's another way, get me out of this cross. If it can't, I want to do what you want. But I know this is going to be literally hell. And I don't want this if it doesn't have to be. And then he goes back to his friends. Are you guys can't, you guys, I'm, I'm really struggling here. And he goes back to the father. So he can relate to you when you feel overwhelmed, obsessively distressed and weighed down with emotion too big to bear. How about obeying God? I mean, in Gethsemane, we know that he deeply, deeply didn't want to have to obey his father's first will. I mean, he didn't ever decide that he wasn't going to obey God. Don't mean me saying that, but he wanted a different commandment. Is there an alternative way to obey here? I, I know you want me to obey this way. Is there another way to obey? Because I'd really like a different way to obey you. So he can sympathize with you when you're tempted to let your passions 
try to provide an alternative to obeying God. But he never did give up on obeying God. Can you see him on the cross just being ridiculed and shamed? I mean, he was being tortured in his body. Nails through his wrists and his feet and a spear through his side. And then and the crown and the beatings and the punchings and the ripping out his beard. And then he's hanging naked on the cross. He was probably naked. And while he's hanging there, they're teasing him. They're making fun of him. I mean, it's not enough that they did all that to him. They had to start mocking him. Oh, you're the Messiah. Come on down. Get off the cross. Loser. Look at you. Cursed of God. You are a loser. Before his mom, before all of his disciples, before his brother, before the government of the city. Open shame. Don't you think he knows what it feels like to be falsely accused and condemned and alone and abandoned? Can he not relate to you when you're tempted to feel utter betrayal and hopeless? Your closest friends have bailed on you. What about anger? There he is dying. <laughs> he could have just literally just sent everybody to hell in a second. Anybody had a right to be furious. I believe he was tempted in his life to be angry. He was angry. He knows what it's like to have to deal with anger in a godly way. We got to go. This is just the final point is just the application from the passage. It just says in 16, go like go when when you need to. (laughs) I mean, you got to go when you got to (laughs) go. My daughter will pick the worst times in the universe to have to go to the bathroom. I mean, we will have just like seven miles ago left the rest stop, you know. And she'll be like, ah, now I gotta go. It's just like, I mean, it's tempting because you, on a four hour car ride somewhere or whatever, and, but it's like, she's gotta go. <laughs> like, you gotta go, you gotta go, right? I mean, that's, God is up there just saying, I know that every day throughout the day, you're struggling. What are you doing waiting? Like, come. What, what, are you ashamed? You think I don't see? No, what you're probably doing, Albert, is you're probably thinking I can't really help. Like, functionally, what's going on here is you've kind of probably decided that I, I just can't really help. Or that I don't like you enough to help. Or that you have to do some things first and then I'll help. I mean, those are garbage Lies. We believe some garbage stuff that Satan likes to put into our heads to keep us from coming to God. He'll tell you, it's not that bad. 
keep going. You don't have to talk to God about that. Or he'll tell you, you're powerless. You can't overcome this. It's, it has, it's, it's a besetting lifetime sin. You just can't get over it. God's not going to help you. There's no point. Or he'll tell you, God, God just doesn't want to deal with you about this anymore. Like, he's had enough. You're wearing them out. This is just, you got to get yourself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But that's not what this passage is telling us. It's telling us you got one source, you got one hope, you got one, one God who has what you don't have for every time of, of need that you have. It's not in you. It's not supposed to be in you. It's not ever going to be in you independently. So come, he says, come. And he says, don't just come. He says, come boldly. Like, come boldly. You're struggling with pornography. Come boldly about that. Like, doesn't that sound shameful to say? Like, I should come brokenhearted. And yes, I think there's some way in which that's great to come brokenhearted. But you may need to get to God with boldness. Because of Jesus Christ before he can break your heart to be as you should about that struggle. And I think God would say, well, you know what? If you don't have the contrite, repentant heart you should have right now, where are you going to get that? Like, where are you going to go? Are you going to go find that at the grocery store and then come and bring it to me? No, you got one place to go as usual. It's him. So come boldly. But why does he say boldly? Because you're awesome and you're worthy. No, come boldly because you're High priest is awesome. Your high priest is awesome. And he is sufficient. And he is all-powerful. And he is almighty. And he's going to help you keep going. And this is important. He may not help you keep going by giving you the perfect victory that you want right now. And this perfect sense of joy that you want right now. Or the ending of the difficult tension you're having to go through right now. That is what I'm finding more and more in my life. That is not often how he works. I go to him and the whole situation is cured and relieved. What I'm finding is I go to him and he does something to me or he teaches me something new that allows me to continue to suffer in a godly way. But that's how we get transformed. I mean, so much of the New Testament tells us that it has been given unto us not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but to suffer on his behalf. Romans 8, we will be raised, I think it says something along the lines, this is a pretty bad paraphrase, but we'll be glorified, provided we suffer with him. And we don't have to ask for the suffering. He's not calling us to go and whip ourselves. And No, he, he knows when to give it to us. He knows what it needs to look like. But it's suffering. And we want out. And, and I feel like what so much grace and mercy is given to me is to give me grace to hang in there in it and give a godly witness in it and stop being a little baby in it <laughs> and somehow try to make some progress, loving him better, hoping him better, and, and moving towards people. But it's a boldness he wants you to come with. Bold. I am coming despite all kinds of reasons I shouldn't because you are so able beyond all I know. I mean, in Ephesians 3, Paul says he is able to do beyond all we ask or imagine through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Like whatever you can think of you need, 
it may not be what you need, but God could certainly do that. This boldness is not in ourselves. It's in our high priest. It's in Jesus. He alone is worthy of our boldness. He alone is worthy of our confidence. Our sin is great, but his sacrifice is much greater. Our need is great, but his grace and mercy are infinitely greater. Our weakness and vulnerabilities are great, but his sympathy, his compassion, his understanding is much greater. Our trials and temptations, they're lifelong, but his intercession is eternal. And he is able to give you and I exactly what we need to come through so that all of our sin, all of what the world can throw at us, all of what the devil can throw at us is not enough to conquer us. Because of him. So now he says, draw near, draw near, come with boldness, come to my father and find out that it will be his delight to give you through the day the perfect grace and mercy you need to sustain you. Come and find out that this is exactly why I came and I suffered and died as a human like you. So that my spirit could come into your life and live inside you and give you power you don't have so as we enter into this season you know if if you're thinking on a local church level let's remember where the strength comes from where the grace comes from where the mercy comes from we hit these sticking points we're probably going to hit over the next few weeks and and maybe you're kind of on the outskirts of this blessing point thing in the, in the local church level. It, it doesn't matter. If you're a child of God, he, he's got you on a journey. He's got you on a road right now of being his disciple. And you need this truth just as much as if you're going to be involved in this local church stuff that we're doing. So wherever you are, let's just turn up the volume on coming and being bold and coming back and asking for help and believing that he has help and not putting it off. Not saying I'll come later or he can't see me like this or he can't deal with this. Let's just, let's just stop that and just come boldly for grace and mercy that he wants to give you, that he poured out his blood to give you, that he put his spirit in you to give you. Let's go with boldness. Let's keep coming. Amen. Amen.